Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called A Family Story of Femicide with Fallon Farinacci. Fallon is an Indigenous advocate and Métis woman, and the loss of her mother and father shaped who she was from a very young age. The death of her brother later in life further impacted her. In this episode, we speak with Fallon about her tragic family experience with femicide. We talk about her life as a Métis woman and advocate, and we learn how she has used her story to help others heal. This episode is part of our six-episode series called Understanding Femicide, which explores what happens when domestic violence becomes lethal. This conversation with Fallon was so incredible, and there are so many things that stuck out to me about it. She explained in this episode that she was the first person in her family to turn 38 years old. She surpassed her mother and her father and her older brother in terms of age, and she had a lot of survivor's guilt about this. She decided when her 38th birthday came around that if she didn't celebrate the fact that she was here, that she would be consumed by the guilt, and she needed to push forward and do something with her life to move forward and help others. It was just so amazing to hear how someone could take something so tragic that happened to them and use it to create change. I really admired this about Fallon, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence, abuse, and suicide, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself. Don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this series. Hi, Fallon. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm so excited to sit down and have this conversation with you. Oh, thanks. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. We've been really looking forward to it. So can't wait to hear what you have to say. We're going to just start off by asking you to share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Fallon Farinacci. My spirit name is White Thunder Woman. The elder who gifted me my name said that I'm here to make a lot of noise. I used to say I plan to do just that, but I feel like I'm actually in the moment of doing that and using my voice. So I'm Red River Métis. My two feet are currently planted in the Niagara region on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. This is not my, my home territory. I'm originally from Manitoba. I was born out there and raised for part of my life on Treaty 1, just outside of Winnipeg in a predominantly Métis community. And I am a wife and a a mother of three. I like to lead with everything about me first because I feel like oftentimes as mothers or wives, we go right into that identity. And so I just trying to flex that muscle of learning my my identity comes first before all of those things. 
I love that. I just became a mother myself in April. So uh, I'm just kind of learning how that works too, actually. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. Um, So again, we're really grateful to have you here today and share a bit about your story. Uh, As you know, this podcast is all about domestic violence. Um, We're also talking about femicide. So we're really interested to hear your story. And I know you've done a lot of advocacy work and have a bit of a story yourself. So I was hoping maybe you could start by sharing a little bit about your story. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, I grew up in Manitoba. The community I grew up in is a predominantly Métis community. This was my father's community. So the town name is St. Estache. I grew up out there. My father was from there. My mother, however, was from the Niagara region. I lived what you would call a normal life, whatever that might be. But it wasn't, when I say normal, I mean in the idea of when you hear my story, that wasn't what my life was. I wasn't around violence or abuse of any kind like that. However, I will say though that that's often a qualifying standard I use that society has put on us. If we say that, you know, we lived a normal life, then it wasn't something that was meant for me because, you know, I lived in that type of lifestyle. It doesn't matter if you were in that life or not. No one deserves what my story is, right? So I just try to squash that notion that we deserve it if we are brought up in it, which no one is deserving of it. So um, in 1992, a friend of the family, his name was Andre. My father grew up with him. He was around our house quite often. My family would have him over. We'd have him over for dinners. Uh, He grew increasingly obsessed with my mother. His demeanor started to change enough where it was a red flag for both my mother and my father. And then in uh, November of 1992, Andre called our family home. And he called our family home because it was his birthday It had just passed and my mother didn't call him and that upset him. Where in years past, that was never a conversation if my mother didn't call him or my father didn't call him. And so he called and the evening he called, he threatened my mother and told her that she wouldn't live to see her next birthday and that he wouldn't live to see his either. And so he was also threatening suicide. So at that point, he said he couldn't live without my mother And he also didn't want to see anyone else live with my mother, like my father. My mother took that threat very seriously and called the RCMP. And so from where I live to Winnipeg, it's approximately 40 minutes. And just outside of Winnipeg is Headingley. Headingley is the RCMP office that would come out to our community. There would be the ones that would be in charge of policing our community. So a couple officers came out. They took a statement from my mother My mother was quite shaken, and I actually only learned this in the last, I would say, six months or so, that my father was equally worried. He was genuinely worried, Um, and as I go through my story, you'll come to understand why. So a statement was taken. RCMP officers came out. They did arrest him, and Andre went before a judge. When he went before a judge, the RCMP failed to mention my mother's concerns in her statement which were she was worried he had a 22 caliber rifle. And they did not tell the judge this, nor was there a, a seizure of any weapons, a search of his home, 
nothing like that. The only thing that was put into place was a restraining order. So following that time in December of 1992, my mother started to hear from community members yet again that he was threatening her life. He was known to police. He had been arrested, I believe, 13 prior times, all mostly alcohol and drug-related offenses. So they were aware of who he was. I believe it was in 1990, the RCMP fought to keep him in jail and say that he should not receive bail. They did not do that in November, and he was released out on bail. So when he was going around community in December, he was telling people yet again about wanting to kill my mother. So my mother wrote the RCMP office. I mean, it's 1992, so sometimes when I say this, I I try to get people to understand Like that was probably her way of communicating with them, whether she tried to call and couldn't get through. There's no record of that. We don't know. We just know that she did write a letter. And in this letter, she stated she was concerned yet again that he had a 22 caliber rifle as well as a handgun. This fell on deaf ears. Nothing was done with it, um, unfortunately. And then in January of 1993, the Crown started going forward with proceedings for my parents' court case. And what happened was it accidentally ended up on a crown for family law. And we're not sure why. We were in no way related to Andre whatsoever. And so it ended up on this crown's desk. He took the case. And with this type of case, I don't know for what reason, it went to mediation um, where it was actually a criminal case. He had uttered threats under no circumstance Uh, even at the time under Manitoba law, should it had proceeded that way. But it did, it continued. And when the court clerk was creating the documents, she accidentally sent Andre my mother's papers and my mother received his. So at this point now, my parents are losing complete faith in the system. So I was nine years old at the time. My younger brother was just about to turn five at the end of January And my older brother was 17. My parents were uh, 36 and 37 years old. So what happened next was they were supposed to go to court for mediation. My mother didn't go. As far as I know, my grandmother just explained it. My mother's mother explained it as like my mother had lost faith in the system and that she wasn't going to continue proceeding that way. Andre still had to obviously go before a judge, but it was remanded. And so the same day it was remanded, he was released out on his bail conditions that he already had, which I will also mention never stated that he couldn't drink or stay away from drugs or have any weapons either. So the day that this all happened was January 26th and Andre was released out on his previous bail conditions. And he went around and continued to tell people that he couldn't live without my mother. And again, He didn't want to live himself. And you have to think our community still, it's holding strong at about 300 people. And so word gets around quite quickly. Everyone knows what was happening. My father was obviously telling people how he felt as well and how worried he was. And so on January 26th, my older brother was at home in the basement. He was awake. He was waiting for a friend to come over. We were all in bed. Obviously, my 
younger brother and myself were in bed and then my parents went to bed. My brother was in exam period. So that's why he was waiting for that friend to come over. It was, it was during the week and he heard a knock at the door just uh, around midnight and he went upstairs and he opened the door and it was actually Andre standing there. And he had a 22 caliber rifle, the same 22 caliber rifle that my parents um, had told the RCMP about not once, but twice. So he came into our home. Uh, he held my brother hostage and it was about quarter after two that he uh, went up. He had tied up my brother, I should say, first. And then he went upstairs. He told my brother that he was going to go upstairs and, quote, do the deed because he could not live without my mother. My older brother escaped, thankfully, and he ran to my parents' best friend's home who had a phone. And so they called for 911 for help from the RCMP. The first 911 call went in at 2.30. I'll fast forward here and just say that the RCMP didn't actually come to our house. The SWAT team, I should say, didn't come to our house until seven. There was uh, two officers that did come out to our home, but they didn't get there for over an hour. And another 911 call had to go in. My mother did talk to the RCMP at one point, but she was trying to answer questions so that Andre didn't know what was happening. So my younger brother and I were held hostage in the house. Obviously, he had been drinking and was using drugs. Andre did go upstairs and he had shot and killed my father almost immediately. And then um, he shot my mother twice and she died just before 6.30. And then he turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. So from 6.30 until 8.30, when the RCMP finally came into our home, my younger brother and I had to sit in that house with all three of them had already been passed for two hours. So we sat in there waiting for the RCMP to come. Uh, again, there was many mishaps from that first 911 uh, call when it went in. The chain of command would be that the 911 dispatcher would tell the officers. Those officers would let their command know. And then from there, he would dispatch SWAT, a hostage negotiator, except for he was the only hostage negotiator. And before he could call um, to dispatch SWAT or even let his next level of seniority know, he fell back asleep. But before he fell back asleep, he instructed those two officers, go out and see if you can talk to Andre. That was his instructions. He wanted to get them to come out, even though they already knew my father was shot and that there was two children in the home being held hostage. There was, there was no level of urgency whatsoever. Um, and the very fact that he went back to bed just... Uh, goes to show you that there was a lot of lack of care and process throughout my parents' court case, let alone just the evening that they were killed. So at 8.30, when officers came in, again, this was something I only learned in the last year. They came in because my grandfather, my father's father, had breached the line, um, and that kind of pushed them to have to come inside. I recently, unfortunately, listened to the case of Colton Bushy and how his mother was told. And if people aren't aware of how the RCMP handled that case, it's absolutely awful. But they went in and they, they um, tore apart this poor woman's home after her son was shot and killed. And they just told her in the most disgusting manner that her son had been killed. And, you know, the RCMP, when they came into our house, 
they just pegged um, the bodies off as if they weren't humans. They just yelled out, this one's gone, this one's gone, this one's gone. Uh, and then the paramedics that came into the home had started to, to carry us out to safety. So that's uh, a little bit about my story. Unfortunately, there was no proper post-traumatic care. So when we moved to Ontario, my brothers and I didn't really receive it. I'm kind and say we received maybe two play-based therapy, but my older brother, he had aged out. He turned 18 within a month of moving to Ontario and it impacted him deeply. And at the age of 29, I suffered the biggest loss. People probably don't understand that. Obviously losing my parents was you know, devastating, but um, my older brother committed suicide when he was 29. And so that completely turned my, my world upside down. So yeah, that's kind of a little bit about um, my, my story, my family's story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I can't even imagine how difficult it is to retell this story. So just thank you so much for your bravery and sharing it. And I do think it's really important we talk about these difficult things. I think we need to raise awareness about it and we need to do what we can to support survivors. So I I think it's so important to share these stories, even though they are difficult. There's so many things that strike me about your story. The very first thing that struck me was about all the red flags that you mentioned. There's so many red flags there. And by the sounds of it, the system completely failed your family. When we talk about domestic violence and all different types of violence, really, there are lots of red flags there that we can go by and figure out how we need to get people help based on what's happening. And and you could really see the violence escalating and his behavior changing the way you described it. And it, it was really alarming to me that some of these signs were not taken seriously. So that was really the first thing that struck me there. Um, Would you like to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I was going to say, so my mother's case was actually one of three in um, a very short period. I believe it was three women who were all killed by their stalkers in Manitoba. Yeah, there were... Um, laws put in place already to protect women within Manitoba against their stalkers, but they weren't actually being implemented yet at that point. So you can clearly see my parents' case, my mother's case, it's really woven into, uh, I unfortunately forget one of the victims' names. The other one was Terry Lynn Babb. And the reason why I remember Terry Lynn Babb was she was actually shot outside of Misericordia Hospital where my mother worked. And my mother's first instinct was to run out and see the color of Terry's hair because she thought that the bullet was meant for her because she thought it was Andre, but it was actually Terry Lynn Babb's stalker. And so there have been a lot of changes because of these three cases. And I know some people hate like things happen for a reason and all of that, but you know, you can't change these things. So what did happen from that was change. And so I wish I could tell those three women and my father from what had happened, the changes that came from it in Manitoba, hopefully continued to to protect women in these vulnerable positions. That is good to hear. I think it's really hard when we hear these stories to think about 
any positives that come out of it because it is so tragic and devastating. But I think that's the only way we can kind of carry on is to have hope and to think about how we can support others and prevent these tragedies from happening. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I know that you yourself do a lot of work with different organizations, with Indigenous organizations. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about some of the advocacy work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I had always shared my story. It was something that I'm so grateful that my family did. They talked very openly about it. So I never felt shame around it. And I truly do believe that it helped alleviate some of the trauma because it wasn't this thing that we didn't talk about or I didn't have to, you know, step lightly around the conversation. And in 2017, the opportunity came about my cousin had suggested to me that maybe I would want to testify for the National Inquiry for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, Two-Spirited, LGBTQQIA plus people. And so I did. So I went home to Manitoba in 2017. I testified. And then in 2019, I, I don't know what it was. I said to my husband, I know what I'm going to do. And he said, what's that? And I said, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be me as a Métis woman. And I'm going to, you know, share my story. And he was like, yeah, kind of looked at me. And he was like, I was like, what? He's like, well, you already do that. Because I had been, right? But I wasn't aware of what I was doing. And it really wasn't until I testified that I met other family members. I met other people of MMIWG2S Plus that shared similar stories to me. You know, my story was always just my story. So I thought it was, you know, normal. Like that was my story. I didn't think other people had those. And on this journey, you know, I met many people who have similar stories, but I've met two people who have almost identical stories to mine, which is absolutely wild. So in 2019, shortly after I said that to my husband, I received a call from at the time, Commissioner Michelle Odette, and she asked if I would join the National Family Advisory Circle. And so I sat along, you know, more family members and friends and hearing their story. And I thought, okay, you know, this isn't right. There's more than just me where for the longest time I didn't realize that. And so that kind of opened up the door for advocacy. I never in a million years (laughs) thought that this is the route that I would be be on, the journey that I would be on. Um, I'm so grateful for it because it's lend me so much healing and different perspectives. And it's just been, obviously I don't want to be on this journey. But this is the hand that I've been dealt. And if I can use my family's story to bring any kind of change, then I will. I've said this before. My story has used me for so many years. Trauma, hurt, grief, that I'm going to use my story for change. And so from there, I've just continued on and advocating and trying to bring awareness for MMIWG2S+. That's incredible. It's really amazing how you were able to connect with so many other people who went through something similar. It's horrible that you had to do this, but it's also amazing that you could kind of find that community together and support one another. And I think it is surprising to people how many people do experience this. That's why we use the phrase, she is your neighbor. I think it's happening to so many people across Canada and throughout the world, really. And it does. It doesn't matter your background. It can happen to so many different people. And so many people go through such similar experiences of violence. And I think the the only kind of silver lining there is that we can support each other and, and we can get through this. 
And with that, I'm wondering if you have any words of advice or encouragement for other survivors who may be dealing with um, survivors' guilt um, or who are just having a, a tough time navigating something similar. Just talking about it, I know like that's a big step, right? So if you already are in that position where you can talk about it and you can just share with friends, family members, whoever are your safe people, then obviously have that conversation specifically for me for like being within the Indigenous community. Mine was just ask, just go out, ask. Like, you know, you would be really surprised. And someone might be saying like, ask for what? Ask whatever it is that you've been seeking, something that you've been, you know, wanting to connect with. For me, it was like, I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask the people that I know about Uh, reclaiming, connecting to culture and community, because maybe in there, there'll be healing. And if there wasn't, then, then that's okay. But we have this intuition inside of us and often we don't listen to it. So just listen to that. And if you're not in a place where you're ready to share, I mean, I'm a big advocate for therapy, whatever that looks like. It does not have to be the westernized Therapy. I go to drumming on Monday nights because that is therapy for me. I can feel when I haven't gone and where I am in my headspace. So we all know the things that make us feel good and make us feel safe. Do those things. And then from there, I truly believe that you'll start to either A, open up more or even just maybe find some of the peace that you might be looking for. I think that's great advice. I think, you know, there's so many things we can all do to heal ourselves and everybody has something in their journey that that they can do to make themselves feel better. And I don't think it does have to be kind of the traditional therapy that we talk about. I know at Women's Crisis Services, we have so many different types of therapies to support people on their journey. We have music therapy, we have art therapy. Um, it's kind of, you know, finding what works for you and, and whether it's connecting with your community. There's so many things we can do to kind of get through these difficult times. Something else I know that you did, which I'm I'm thinking helped on your healing journey, was starting a fundraiser last year. You did a GoFundMe for your 38th birthday. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I want to follow up to say is you're going to feel really uncomfortable. Like I love that you offer music therapy and art therapy. You're going to feel uncomfortable. The first time I went to drumming, I did not want to go. I felt like and I'm not, I'm not demeaning children. I'm saying it for myself, my own child self, having to go into a new place and not know and all the unknowns and being so worried, like, who am I? Why am I here? Everyone's going to look at me. And at the end of the day, you just have to push through that. And so I had those same feelings when it came to the fundraiser. So I was going to be the first person I am, the first person in my family to turn the age of 38. As I mentioned, my father passed away at 37 and my mother passed away at 36 and my brother was 29. So I had a lot of guilt, um, survivor's guilt, the idea that I was going to be the first person, like, why me? Why am I here? What's this purpose for? As I'm sure many survivors feel and think, um, And so I thought, I'm going to shift this narrative because I have this like awful tendency to self-sabotage. And I thought, if I don't celebrate the fact that I am here, I would be consumed. Regardless, I still had lots to process and go through. 
don't think that I did this fundraiser and I didn't have to go through all the processing. I did. It just helped having a whole lot more of support around me. So if you're not doing a fundraiser like I did, and you know you have something difficult coming up, then just ask, get that support, tell someone, be very open. This is going to be a really hard time. I want to do this, or this is coming up. You know, like all of those things. We do that for things like, you know, maybe a girlfriend has a 40th birthday and she's going to have a really hard time. I don't want to turn 40. Oh my goodness. Let's do something. Let's go away. Like, you know, we do it for the, I want to say like the lighter, more celebratory things. And we don't do it for the things that we're suffering in the silence with. So, and we think that it's not joyful and happy. Well, we can still ask for the support through that. So I started the fundraiser. It's called the Celebrate Indigenous Resilience Fundraiser 38. I pressed enter on a GoFundMe and I almost threw up, <laughs> to be honest. I was very sick. I bawled my eyes out. I cried. I almost pressed cancel because I was so worried for so long. No one listened to my story or cared. So what if they didn't care? And the reason why I was so concerned about people not caring was not because it was just going to land on me emotionally, mentally. It was because the fundraiser was set up. It is set up um, that uh, all the funds go to two different organizations. One is here in the Niagara region. Goes um, The funds went to Abbey House. Abbey House is a transitional home for Indigenous women. And the other organization is the Manitoba Métis Federation, specifically the St. Nostache Local, the community I grew up in to go towards supporting Métis youth there. And so if no one cares and I don't raise the funds, you know, I feel like I'm letting these organizations down. My goal, initial goal was $3,800 signifying, you know, like turning 38. I started it in June of last year and I was going to let it go until September 16th of that year because September 16th is not my birthday. September 16th was the official day that I had outaged my father. Um, my birthday's in December. So we started the fundraiser. And within 24 hours, we hit the goal of 3,800. And I quickly got onto a, an Instagram live with one of my girlfriends, Jessica Jansen. She's absolutely amazing. And she has her own not-for-profit. And she, she pushed me to raise it to $10,000. Well, we squashed that goal very quickly. And within a month, I had raised it up to 38000 We hit that goal. In two months, I had raised it. So we raised another 38000 because I thought, well, heck, let's try to give both organizations 38000 And then I thought, you know what, let's just keep going. Because I did say that I was going to keep it up until September 16th. And I did. And as of September 30th of last year, we had hit over and I actually never took it down. So it is still up. So if people want to Google, go fund me, celebrate um, Indigenous resilience, you can find it. And yeah, 100% of the funds have gone to both organizations. There is no grant writing. There is no barriers. There is no hoops to jump through. They get 100% of the money, minus obviously GoFundMe's fees. Um, but beyond that, they get all of it. And from there, I've continued on, you know, doing other fundraisers as well, which would add to the total. So 
I bet you right now, if I had added the totals from the other fundraisers that we've done, we would probably be close, if not a little over $110,000 right now. That is so incredible. That's amazing. What an idea and how it just took off and has supported so many uh, within the communities. That's that's so amazing to hear. I, I love it so much. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of community, your story, because had I not press enter, none of that would have happened and nor would I have met the people that I've met on this journey Um, and I'm just so grateful for it. And you might've heard me say we throughout this, like we raised because it was not me. It was community. It was people hearing my story, sharing it and donating. Um, so it was definitely not me. All I simply did was press enter and then the uh, community took over from there. Oh, that's amazing. Um, And you've already kind of touched on this a bit, but the last thing I want to ask you is, um, this is called the She Is Your Neighbor podcast. And we like to talk about how we can all be better neighbors to women, children, and anyone experiencing domestic violence or violence. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, absolutely. One, I would say like, whether you know they're experiencing violence or not, because many of us don't, right? Um, be kind. You have no idea what someone's story is. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a room to speak and I can tell by people's faces. They're looking at me. Um, They have this notion. Obviously, I have identity trauma as well, being Indigenous um, here in this country. But also, maybe I look put together. Maybe I don't, (laughs) but maybe I look put together. Maybe, you know, I don't look like someone who, who maybe has went through what I went through and I've seen it in people's faces. I've seen the judgment. And then the minute I tell that my story, I'm instantly qualified to them to be telling that story that like light bulb goes off for them. Their eyes soften, their face soften, and, and they're a little more kind with me. So going forward, my suggestion to people would be, you have no idea what someone is going through. And we hear this day to day, be kind. You don't know what someone's going through. You don't though. Like we, I think most people say that in the idea of like, oh, they're having a bad day. You know, like you see the whatever on Instagram, Facebook, on social media, just, you know, be kind. When you hear these types of stories, there's so much more depth and meaning to it. So, um, and just show up like there is community out there for you. You just, you might have to find it. You might have to take that first step, but I promise you, you will not regret taking that first step. It might be very scary. Find someone that you feel comfortable going with. I went to my first drumming with one of my girlfriends. We weren't really even that close at that time. I picked her up and we went. So I always say to people, I'm always here. You can find me on social media, reach out, you know, and um, if I'm that person to walk with you to your first, whatever it is, community event, then I'm, I'm happy to be here or have that conversation with you to encourage you to go and do those things. Thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing your story. I feel so motivated after this. I know it can be kind of a a sad topic to touch on, but you're just so encouraging and motivating. And I know that survivors listening to this are are going to feel um, motivated and encouraged and, and know they can get through what they're going through. So thank you so much for being here today. Amazing. Thank you. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. 
We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.